let's get into Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Today we have a very short passage, verse 1 through 6. Let's read it together. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he, verse 5, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. Shake our hearts. Shape us into your image, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Okay, the story that we just read is one of the most terrifying episodes in all of the gospel accounts. Jesus we read, visits his hometown of Nazareth. And they in Nazareth are astonished at his words and also at his works. Uh, they knew that Jesus was powerful and that mighty works had been done by him all throughout their region. They'd heard of his reputation. But since they knew Jesus and knew his family, for many years, they became offended at Jesus. They took offense at Jesus, it says in verse 3. Jesus responded to their offense by quoting a popular proverb from their day. Uh, it was about how prophets receive honor everywhere else but in their hometown. All over the place, various towns and peoples had celebrated and received Jesus, believed Jesus, that he could heal people and work miraculously. And so he did. But in Nazareth, there was another story. They did not believe in Jesus. And here's where the episode takes a very scary turn. If you have your Bible, look at it there in verse 5. It says, and he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. It's, a, it's one of those phrases in the Bible that I would hardly venture to say if it weren't written right there in the pages of Scripture, that Jesus could not do something. But there it is in black and white. Jesus could not do a mighty work in Nazareth. He was handcuffed. His power was restrained. The powerful, almighty, transcendent Son of God, who had been an unstoppable force all throughout Galilee, was stopped in his hometown of Nazareth. He could do no mighty work there. 
Now, there were a few sick people who apparently had enough faith to be healed, and so Jesus healed them. But for the most part, Jesus couldn't do anything in Nazareth. And he, for his part, in verse 6, it says, marveled because of their unbelief. His normal power was obstructed by their unbelief, by their lack of faith. Okay, the reason that this whole story is so frightening is that we should want Jesus to do a mighty work in our community, in our church, in our families, and in our lives. You know, we should crave his active power changing and transforming us. We should be discontent with what happened here in Nazareth. Just a few among us experiencing Jesus's grace in this way. And it should terrify us that this episode happened and that some did not experience his might because of their unbelief. I mean, the reality is we don't want to see just a few men experience Jesus, but all of the men of Calvary Monterey. We don't want to see only a few women in the church experience Jesus, but all the women of the church. We don't want to see just a few pastors in our community experience Jesus, but all pastors. We want to see families where every single member is growing and progressing in Christ. We want to see marriages where both the husband and the wife are enjoying Jesus's mighty work in their own lives personally. And we want to witness the single men of the church pursue Jesus just as much as many of the single women of the church are pursuing Jesus. But as much as we want these things, and as much as Jesus wants these things, the reality is, as we see in this story, he will not force himself upon anybody. He's powerful, he's infinite, he's sovereign, but in our story, we learn that he has decided to work, at least somehow, in some way, in accordance with our faith. Unbelief killed Jesus's work back then in Nazareth, and it can kill Jesus's work today. Now, I've titled this message, How, How to Unleash Jesus's Mighty Work in Your Life. It's a little bit of a misnomer. It's kind of a provocative title. It's not normally the way I would entitle a Bible study. Because there aren't really a series of steps that you can follow that will somehow magically unlock Jesus's power in your life. Really, this whole section is about cultivating a proper view of Jesus, one which leads to faith, which is what Jesus loves and what Jesus looks for. He works with our faith. Remember last week, the woman with the flow of blood had faith. Jairus had to only believe. He had to have faith. And here, the Nazarenes, they have no faith. They have unbelief. So I could have easily called this message, How to Cultivate Faith in Jesus. How to Cultivate Faith in Jesus. So let's do that today by considering the cultivation of trust in Jesus as an important way to tap into 
his power. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, you must accept his invitation. You must accept his invitation. Let me show you what I mean from verse one in the story. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Okay, let's talk for a second about Nazareth itself, Jesus's hometown. We, of course, know that it was not Jesus's birthplace. That was Bethlehem. But after fleeing to Egypt for a short time during Jesus's early years, Joseph led his family back into Israel, went to Bethlehem, or at least intended to do so, and then was warned by God. So he went up to Nazareth. It's about a 25 mountainous mile journey away from Capernaum on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee on a trade road called the Way of the Sea. It goes all the way from the Mediterranean coast to the region of Galilee uh, and beyond. And to get there, it goes uphill into the range that Nazareth is in before then going back downhill to the region of the Sea of Galilee. And along that path, that journey was this little out of the way town that had been hacked into the region's rocky hillside. Now, archaeology and historical records, when you put them together, help us get a good picture of Nazareth during Jesus's day. It was small, it was out of the way, and it probably had a population that did not exceed three or 400 people, 500 max, and quite possibly about 150 people living in this small little town. It's a town that is never referenced in the Old Testament, is barely mentioned in secular history. It was a forgotten place, but more on Nazareth later. Okay, Jesus's trip to his hometown, uh, it's Meant, we're meant to see that it was not a vacation. It was not a time for Jesus to rest. This was a missions trip for Jesus. Uh, he went into their synagogue on the Sabbath day and he taught. He healed a few sick people. And uh, he must have wanted to do a mighty work there uh, because he marveled at the unbelief that prohibited him from doing so. And not only that, but notice there in verse one, that when Jesus came to his hometown, he brought his disciples with him. That's how ancient rabbis rolled. They brought the men that they were teaching, that they were discipling with them on their journey. And Jesus was preparing his disciples because in the next episode, he will send them out two by two into various towns. They needed to see what it was like to experience rejection. That's what they needed to learn about for the mission that Christ was going to give to them. And so this trip to Nazareth was a working trip for Jesus. He came to Nazareth to work. But what work did Jesus come to Nazareth to perform? What invitation was he giving to these Nazarene people? You know, was he merely a miracle worker who went into the region to deliver people from their maladies? No, remember, Jesus came to introduce God's kingdom. We talked about this, I think, in our second study in the Gospel of Mark. In, in Mark's introduction, he says, in chapter 1, verse 14, 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, this, is, this, this presents to us one of the problems of talking about faith and Jesus' power in our modern era. You see, we look back and we see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus doing miracles. And we conclude that if we had faith, that's what would get unlocked for us. More miracles and more healings. But what Jesus came to offer was something far greater than healings. Something, in fact, that the healings were supposed to point forward to. A kingdom. That's why Mark said it that way at the outset of his record. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Those healings evidenced a kingdom, the kingdom of God, one without pain and one which can produce real and radical transformation even within you. Eventually, Jesus's people, the church, they would go into all the world and they would always preach the gospel and sometimes heal people, which was a way for them to communicate the message that Jesus can help anyone. And Nazareth became emblematic of something very sad, of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. You see, Israel was engaged in crucifying the very Christ that their scriptures had predicted would come. And Nazareth was right there with them. They didn't want the kingdom that Jesus offered. Mostly because of something very simple. They didn't want the king that came with that kingdom. They liked the miracles. They liked the healings. But they didn't want Jesus to be superior in their lives. Now here's the question. Do you want the kingdom's king? Can you look past the earthly and past the temporal stuff of life to see the greater kingdom that Jesus wants you to live in? Can you hear his invitation to be part of his kingdom? Can you allow him to become the king who reorders your life, who shows you a better way to live and has jurisdiction over every part of you. Revelation 1 verse 20 pictures Jesus to a cold-hearted church in Laodicea, a lukewarm church in Laodicea, knocking at the door of their hearts, standing at the door, knocking on the outside, you see, the rejection of King Jesus is one of the quickest ways to quench Jesus's work in our lives. You know, once we make life about our kingdom or about our priorities or about our motivations, we become less than who he has designed us to be. You know, he loves us and he loves us even when we're all about ourselves, even when we're being selfish. But when we daily accept his offer, his invitation of the kingdom, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when that is our mentality, we open ourselves up to his power. 
Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted you to see. Accept his invitation. But number two, I think secondarily, we must know who he is. We must know who he is. And for that, we have to look at verse two and three. I'll read it again to you. It says, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, Jesus here, it says, taught in the synagogue of Nazareth there on the Sabbath day. Now, you have to remember, this is a synagogue that Jesus had been to uh, thousands of times before this during his early years, before his public ministry. And more than likely, Jesus had actually already gone and announced his coming in Nazareth in a previous episode that Luke's gospel makes mention of. But here he is now, not just a visitor, but a, as, a, as a rabbi, preaching a message in this synagogue. And they were astonished at everything that they heard that day. And the questions started pouring out of their mouths. What, where did this man get these things? Where did all this wisdom come from? And how does he have the power to do all of these mighty works? Now notice that it says there in verse three that they knew of Jesus, not as the rabbi, not as the miracle worker, not as the Messiah, but as the carpenter. Did you see that there in verse three? The people of that small little town had come to Jesus to fix all their broken chairs and farming equipment and broken walls, but they had never come to Jesus for him to fix a broken body. And they certainly had never come to Jesus to fix a broken soul. They knew of him as a carpenter, a man who worked with his hands. And they bolstered their own arguments against Jesus by pointing out Jesus's own family members. Now they knew that all of Jesus's, uh, all, they knew all of Jesus's four brothers and his unnamed sisters. They called Jesus the son of Mary, uh, which was likely a way for them to throw a little shade on Jesus. You see, in that culture, a man was named after his father, not after his mother. But they didn't refer to Jesus as Jesus, the son of Joseph. They called him the son of Mary. It was a, probably a way for them to make reference to the unusual and perhaps scandalous way in which Jesus had been born. A kind of a way for them to say, hey, we don't know if Joseph's your dad, but we do know that Mary is your mother. What's up with that? Now, all this demonstrates that they really didn't understand Jesus's identity. Maybe you've heard the phrase before or said the phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. And we might be tempted to think that's what was happening here in Nazareth. They're so familiar with Jesus that they have contempt and offense because of Jesus. But really, this isn't the case with them and Christ. 
uh, they were asking where Jesus had gotten his wisdom and power and how he performed so many miraculous things. And in trying to explain him, they went back to his origin story and only saw a little family that they knew all too well. What they didn't realize, however, is that Jesus was the son of God standing right there in their midst. In other words, they weren't actually familiar with who Jesus was. With Jesus, what you could say is that lack of familiarity breeds contempt. The more you're familiar with Jesus, the more you want to honor him, the more you want to worship him. To know who he is means that you know his majesty and his beautiful and humble condescension for humanity. You see, if they'd known who Jesus was that day, they would have marveled that when he came, he came to live in such a backwoods, insignificant, forgotten little town. They would have been in awe of his willingness to so identify with the human struggle that he became a carpenter in a little hamlet in the rocky hills of northern Israel. They would have agreed with the words of Paul the Apostle when he said in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. They would have rejoiced that God entered into this mess of earth and became one of us. And that awe would have turned into appreciation. And that appreciation would have turned into love. And that love would have turned into trust or faith. They would have trusted Jesus and his power would have been unleashed upon their lives. But rather than rejoicing over Jesus, they were offended by Jesus. He stumbled them. They got tripped up over the fact he was a Nazarene, one of them. But they should have realized he wasn't only one of them, but the son of God. And we also should see the fullness of who Jesus is. We cannot allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep, unimpressed by his identity. Okay, but this leads us to the third application. Number three, we must honor him. We must honor him. Let's look at verse four together. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, like I said earlier, Jesus here was quoting a proverb that they all knew really well. The saying was that prophets were often received with honor and distinction, but just not in their hometowns, not among their extended family, and not in their own homes. And it was just a saying that they had. Uh, if you go back and read the Old Testament, you discover that even this saying really isn't all that true. The prophets of old were rejected by pretty much everyone that they spoke to. But it was kind of their way of saying that, hey, it's hard to excel in the eyes of people who have watched you grow up. They're familiar with you, so it's difficult to spread your wings and fly, so to speak. Now, someone once said it like this. They said, an expert is a regular person from another town. <laughs> and I think there's an element of truth in that statement. You see, these Nazarenes despised the greatest Nazarene who ever lived. 
The only reason that we talk about their town at all is because Jesus lived there. Everywhere Jesus went, he was honored as a prophet should be honored, at least by the masses, but not at home. Instead of honor, they despised Jesus. They withheld the fear and the reverence that he deserved. Okay, now I already tried to point out how they really didn't know Jesus. This wasn't really a problem of their over-familiarity, but a problem of their ignorance. Uh, they just didn't get who Jesus was. But perhaps there is a warning here in the Nazarene's reaction to Jesus. You know, they took Jesus for granted. They got used to having him around. They just couldn't see him as anything more than a carpenter, so they refused to honor him. And maybe they serve as a warning that we shouldn't get too comfortable with Jesus. He's not your homeboy. He's not your best friend forever. He's not your vending machine dispensing things that you desire. He's not just a shoulder to cry on or a source of understanding. He's not a dream maker. He's not the servant to help you live your best life. He's not the one worthy of only sporadic worship. No, he's the slain lamb of God who was slaughtered instead of you and instead of me. He's the conquering lion who will submit everything to his power one day. He's the sustainer of the universe. And on top of that, he is the word who by his word spoke all that is into existence. He is the image of the invisible God and he deserves our honor. He deserves our reverence. He deserves our respect. You see, no matter how many years you've been in Christ, you should not cease, cease to be amazed by Jesus. If you've grown up in the church, if you're growing old in the church, or if you're just a little new growth inside the church, you must honor Jesus. You must think highly and often of him. That's part of the reason why I love our church's vision statement. Jesus famous. What we want to see more than anything is the fame of Christ. We want his name and life and death and resurrection and promises and implications to be celebrated like nothing and no one else. We want our whole community to become overwhelmed and infatuated with Jesus. Other communities too. We want the fame of Christ to invade the mind of every person who is ever part of Calvary Monterey. But sometimes we get so used to Jesus that we begin to withhold the honor that he deserves. We think we've heard it all before. And though it never should, even his cross begins to lose its luster. Our worship begins to stagnate. Our prayers begin to dissipate and our joy begins to evaporate. We become distracted from Jesus to lesser causes, lesser missions, and lesser priorities. But we must get back to the place of honor and celebration of Christ. Keeping Jesus as the main thing saves us from so much heartache. Okay, let's conclude with one last thing that I think helps us see Christ's power unleashed in our lives. Number four, decide that your faith matters. Decide that your faith matters. Let's look at verse five and six together. 
It says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Okay, here the unbelief of the Nazarenes is mentioned as the thing that stopped Jesus dead in his tracks. He could do, like it says, and I've been reading and saying over and over again, he could do no mighty work there in verse 5. Uh, there were, though, a few sick people that, that were healed. It's just an amazing way that Mark records it. He really couldn't do anything major, but, you know, there were a few sick people that he healed. I think to us that is major, but not in that era and in what Jesus was doing in that place and time. And we assume that those who were sick and were healed, that they had faith. Jesus, though, marveled at the collective unbelief that he found there in Nazareth. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus only marveled two times. Uh, once, right here, at the unbelief of the Nazarenes, and second, uh, at the belief or the faith or the trust of a Roman centurion who in another episode asked Jesus to heal his own servant from afar, saying, I'm a man in authority. I know that you are in authority. Just say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at this man and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So he marveled then and he marveled right here in this episode at the unbelief in Nazareth. Now scripture does not say that he was uh, not shocked by depravity, brokenness, or sin. But what it does tell us is that he marveled at unbelief. You see, unbelief is a great hindrance to the work of God. When I say that, when I say that unbelief is a great hindrance to the work of God, I say it with fear and trembling. I'm not one of those guys who throws around phrases like, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. I, I don't say things like let go and let God. That's not the way that I view scripture or God's interaction with us. And I don't want anyone thinking of God like a genie beholden to their wishes and desires. That's why I've tried to show you how Jesus was inviting the Nazarenes and inviting humanity into God's kingdom, not their own little kingdom. And certainly Jesus, he can do whatever he wants to do. In fact, there were times, as was the case when Lazarus died and was in the grave where nobody believed and Jesus did what he wanted to do and raised Lazarus back to life. But it, is, it, it just doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to say that unbelief hinders Christ's work in our lives. He wants to reshape our minds, reform our habits, and remake our souls for his glory. But we must believe that he can do that work. As it says in Hebrews 3, verse 12, we must take care lest there be in any of us an evil and unbelieving heart. Now, maybe you've heard or used the phrase before that it takes two to tango, that it takes two to tango. Well, in a sense, that's true of our relationship with Jesus. You know, it takes two. There's what he wants to do, but we need to 
present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. We must believe in him. We must trust in him. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because, well, for one, the tango is the tango. But secondly, because that gives us the idea that it is a 50-50 partnership. No, if it's about tango, then Jesus is the master dancer who infuses those who dance with him with the ability that he himself has, placing it into their bodies. But the reality is that it does take two to tango. You must step out in faith, believing that he is able. You must decide that your faith, your trust, it matters. And so place your trust in him. Put your life on the line for him. And these Nazarenes, what they decided to do was to refuse to believe in Jesus. Though they'd watched his perfect life from childhood into manhood, they were unmoved. To follow one of Mark's themes, they were on the outside, while a few sick people were on the inside. And I want us to be those who are on the inside. Let's be those who get to be part of his amazing work here on earth. Not just a few of us. Not just a handful of us believing and trusting God for our lives, but all of us, by his blood, all of us can come to God. All of us can receive what we need. None of us has to be outside. Let's all go inside to his plans and kingdom by trusting Jesus more. God bless you, church. My prayers are with you this week. I can't wait to see you again in the flesh. God bless you.